0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts on the network, and today we're talking to Amy Sullivan, an independent scholar and history professor at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the author of the terrific new book, Opioid reckoning, love, loss, and redemption in the rehab state, which was just published in 2021 by the University of Minnesota Press. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. Nice to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. I um I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I live right now in uh, the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, in particular. Um, but I ended up going to uh, state schools. I went to the University of Oklahoma for my undergrad um, history degree and master's degree. And then after I a period um, of several years, I then entered the University of Illinois, Chicago, their work race and gender in the urban world program in um, two thousand four. So I, I, I had children. I had two daughters between degrees and then finally got my PhD in uh, 2013. Another important educational opportunity for me was attending a United World College, uh, which was an international school that had the IB curriculum. And I think it really taught me and grounded me in uh, the global nature of human uh, issues and problems. Um, and then finally. I think your question also included mentors. Um, I, I I, would say at um, the University of Oklahoma, it was Susan Laird, a philosopher of education, who taught me about um, feminist education. I, I worked in the uh, Women and Gender Studies program with her. And then at um, UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, I worked with um, Robert Johnston, who um, encouraged me to push the envelope uh, with my with my history projects and dissertation.
0: And how did you come to write Opioid Reckoning? Well, I have, I had a very um, intimate and painful family
1: experience with um, a heroin overdose that um, my child survived. Um, and, and today she is a thriving um a thriving woman in her late twenties. Um, but we went through a really, really tough time. And I, um, when that happened 10 years ago, I was completely shocked to my core because I was, uh, a product of, um, the 1980s, just say no. And I was one of those people who just, uh, just said no. Um, because I, I was afraid. <laughs> um, so I had really not uh, ever experimented with uh, substances. And so, and, and in particular, heroin um, scared the living daylights out of me. And I, when, when we had, when I was finally able to kind of take a breath from those experiences uh, with her, I started thinking about what, how could I help? How is it that people didn't know? And you know, then I find out, oh, there is an actual epidemic happening, and it started with prescription pills. and I am a, I also study and teach history of medicine. So it all kind of just started coming together. I also teach history of childhood and uh, women's history. So as a mother, understanding childhood, understanding the history of mothering and medicine. It just all kind of um, fell right into my wheelhouse as a personal experience.
0: Before we dive into the book, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the Minnesota Opioid Project, because this book is um, one part of a kind of larger project that you've um, been leading for um, how many years now?
1: Five or six,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. The, I I came up with the project initially because that was all I was going to do. I I am a oral historian. Um, I used oral histories to write my uh, dissertation, and when this I started, there's a very much a um, a storytelling uh, frame in twelve uh, step based support groups. And I was very much drawn to that um, tradition, and I started thinking about how longer um, long form oral history interviews could actually it would it would be really important in this moment that we were in to document some of the stories of of people because as I started um, asking questions of physicians and asking questions of treatment providers, I realized there there had to be, there was going to have to be something significant that would have to change in order for us to not um, to to get a handle on the opioid epidemic, in particular the the original model of the, the abstinence only model, um, which I can talk about in a few minutes about the Minnesota model. Um, it, it seemed like a moment where that was not going to work to help people who were addicted to opioids. And when I realized this as a historian, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's change happening. I am going to document this right now. I'm going to just start talking to people. I don't know what I'm going to do with these these interviews. I don't know if anybody's ever going to read them. But here I am in the epicenter of rehab, the history of rehab in the United States at Hazelden, I better just get some of these stories uh, recorded. And so it was really kind of a um, in the moment decision. And I I started with mothers uh, because I was already um, familiar with um, a a support program for moms and mostly, I mean, dads were welcome, but it was mostly mothers who showed up all the time. So I started interviewing them and then it just started to morph into other areas. I, I started thinking about like, well, what about you know physicians who are promoting medication, and what about you know social workers, and what about people in recovery or people who had experience with opioids in their lifetime um, and were struggling? And so I ended up with about. 50 60 interviews i worked with harm reduction advocates in in the twin cities i i had no idea what harm reduction was as i said i was completely ignorant about all of this stuff ended up gathering a whole bunch of them um created a an an omeka um, archive of harm reduction kind of ephemera and um documents from the 90s in um so it's just it just turned into this kind of big project. So eventually, I decided I'm going to name it the Minnesota Opioid Project, and had to kind of put a box around it as in terms of the state <laughs> because i I soon realized that it could be really um, it could just go on and on forever <laughs> if i if I started thinking about other regions or states in general.
0: Minnesota is a good. Place to draw boundaries, though, and we'll we'll get into addiction treatment in a minute minute here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but before we do, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you prepared to do this work. And in terms of preparation, I'm thinking not just of your training in oral history, but also um, how did you prepare to take care of yourself psychologically while you were researching and writing? This is hard Mm -hmm. work.
1: This is really hard work. And so just to to be personal here for a moment, my dissertation was about a trauma that I also had a personal connection to um, related to an event in the 1970s um, around a a, a tragedy at a Girl Scout camp where I was a camper. So I had spent, you know, a good part of my life um, experiencing uh, post-traumatic stress and never being properly diagnosed. So by the time I was working on my dissertation, I had been, um, I understood so much more about the history of trauma. Um, how did, how do people, you know, heal from it? What kind of the cutting edge treatments uh, that were interesting to me, just not as a person, but also as a historian of medicine. So I was really um, tuned in to listening to how people spoke about things. And so one of the things that uh, helped, this helped me immensely with the um, Opioid Project interviews, because it, you can imagine interviewing mothers who lost their child and their, to an overdose and their willingness to sit down and tell the story of their child's life and their struggle to help them find the kind of care they needed. These were really intense interviews, and I know enough about trauma that when I look, when when I I can see, I read cues in people's faces, their bodies, um, and always start by saying, "You know, if you need to take a break at some point, we can just pause and take a break, or you don't have to talk about this or that." Um, But what I found was more willingness to talk about things than you would normally expect, and I think. I think it has to do because of the way that I myself um, showed empathy and understanding for their situation and and where they were. And so there was a there's probably more of a back and forth with um, my interviews than what, you know, classical oral history people might say, um, oh, you don't do that. or That's, you know, but this is not how I this not how I operate. And so I just decided early on that I was going to have these conversations and um, see where they went. Um, So that my dissertation and my life experience prepared me for it. But I would also say that, you know, my family uh, support group prepared me because initially, before I was writing the book, that was a place where I could go and just feel, you know, just comforted or um, keep up a kind of a, my own learning to just, just those kind of spiritual and personal, interpersonal things that those groups teach you to just take space when you need it, um, take good care of yourself take walks, um, read things for pleasure. <laughs> Don't just always read the news or things for work. So I, I think self-care became a real, well, I know self-care became a really important um, thing for me. I live not far from a lake here in Minneapolis. And so walking that, the, the lake near my house was also um, a huge um, just moment to kind of clear my brain when I'd had, when I'd had, you know, a tough interview.
0: And I, I've, the book also, you write about that in the book too, which I found really meaningful about how, um, you know, people who are living sort of crisis to crisis, you don't have the time or don't have the ability to sort of zoom out and see the, the bigger picture. And, and so, um, you know, having this lived experience, but then um, being in a position to do this more um, Theoretical work and contemplative work. um, It is. um, It anyway, it's something that is unique that you bring to the project.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I. I. Yeah. And and I. One of the things in thinking about how you know the writing of the book, turning it from interviews, is it seemed really clear with the the intensity of the content that it was important for me to be there as a narrator, which is really different from history, you know, history writing. Um, And maybe we can talk about that later or, or now, but it was, it was my editor and I realized that, okay, if you continue to write this way through these chapters, you're helping us because as readers, we need to trust that things are, um, we need to trust you that you're going to help us get through this content. Um, and I, I I think that that was um, something that happened along the way and in the process of, of writing that is also kind of a way of self-care for the actual reader. Um,
0: Well, it it absolutely, uh, the book absolutely does that. And I would encourage our listeners to check it out. Before we, before we jump into the book, um, I want to talk, turn our attention back to Minnesota and um, what the oral history project revealed about the state of addiction treatment in Minnesota. So, um, so, you know, zoom, zooming out, Um, What did you find doing all of these oral histories with so many different stakeholders?
1: Well, what I found is that, and this may not come as a surprise to you, Claire, um, I just found that they were super, they were siloed from each other, that you had um, the Minnesota model, which is the, you know, the model for drug treatment in the entire United States, almost, you know. Across the board, ninety percent, I would say um, unless unless you think that i'm I'm wrong about that I that is what people mean when they say they're going to rehab. It's the Minnesota model that that prepares you to um, remain abstinent from all sub you know all drugs and alcohol and to get support through the um, advocacy support groups, uh, particularly. AA and NA and and 12 step groups and get a sponsor and and work a spiritual program. So there's that model and then there's this, you know, really rich community of addiction medicine physicians and people who are researching at the University of Minnesota about the brain and addiction. Th- this is going on. They're seen completely separately from rehab they don't they very rarely interact with each other <laughs> and then um and then you have the um harm reduction you have the grassroots kind of uh people advocates who came out of the hiv aids era who you know who wear bloodborne diseases with um people who inject drugs needed to have clean needles and the whole kind of network the street-based um person to person network that that emerged in the in the 90s and into the 2000s that's that's reappearing today so I got to see that here in Minnesota these three silos um while they may be aware of each other they're not there's there was very little overlap when I first started interviewing people and then as I got you know a few years into the prog- into the project it became clear that there was starting to be some conversation between these different stakeholders and that Hazelden was going to start using certain medications for opioid use disorder for um, people while they were there and then possibly a little bit after. But there's still that feeling of, you know, that medication such as methadone, suboxone, these are things that mean that a person isn't abstinent and that, that So what I found was I found a lot of troubling, (laughs) a lot of very troubling ideas that were actually keeping families and their loved ones from, from asking questions and, and demanding services that would actually help their help them heal. Um, so it would just be someone would be cut off or shut out, or this person should just be on methadone, and and they have no other reason for a spiritual life, or a you know there's no other reason to like help that person because they've been to treatment so many times. It's just that there needed to there needs to be more overlap, and I think that's what I'm I'm hoping is to kind of create some bridges between by using people's stories, so that you could see, oh well, this doctor. Marv Seppala, who became, he went, he was the first teenager who went to Hazelden in the 70s because he had a drug problem. Then he leaves, decides eventually he wants to be a a doctor, becomes a psychiatrist and wants to go back to Hazelden to be a psychiatrist. And when he goes back, they're like, we don't need a psychiatrist. And he's like, what? So he ends up, He's like, but I wanted to come back here and work and help people with addiction. Um, and and eventually they did hire him and he became their chief medical officer, just retiring this past year. But but I tell that story because he is the perfect example of how a person found the help that they needed, but then saw a bigger problem and went back and wanted to help continue helping and expand this treatment model with science, with with medication and just the struggle that he had in trying to to do that. So there's hope. Um, but I was shocked when I found how kind of siloed and 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 even stigmatizing um, these models are uh, with each other.
0: Well, Opioid Reckoning includes chapters dedicated to oral histories from mothers of children with opioid use disorder, to addic- addiction medicine physicians, harm reduction advocates, treatment providers like Marv, who are working to change the addiction treatment system from within. I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about why you chose to organize this, um, the stories in the book this way.
1: Well, I. I um I started writing the book because I was approached by an editor um, who saw my project on my faculty website, and I had just I had been interviewing people, and what what we and I continued to interview people while I was still writing the book. So some of what happened is that as I started thinking about the narrative arc of the book, um, there were other stories that I needed to gather in order to um. In order to make it, you know, have a beginning and the middle and end in a way. Just just thinking, thinking of it that way. Um, but initially, there were, you know, so certain. So some of the chapters, as you know, are more like, you know, shorter sections that involve individual people's stories, and then others are longer um, narrative. Deep dives into the lives of of people, and one is, in particular as a family and I think what i what I finally decided was that in order to keep the book under the you know page limit that it needed to be was that there were certain stories and in um, narrators who really exemplified things that I had found that were re- that resonated in other stories as well there was there were some common Uh, themes, common experiences, and then one person's story would just kind of stand out as being like this one. And so rather than integrating all the people as if I was doing, you know, qualitative research, (laughs) like, oh, this many people said this, um, I realized that some of the chapters just got too crowded with people. And I, you know, there were the mothering chapter took me forever because it started off for something else, and then was adapted for the book. And, and I realized after I'd started writing the book that I needed fewer people. Um, I didn't need as many people in the book. (laughs) So it's it's really thinking about like the crowd of, of, of narrators. So that's just, that's just in a simple way, how that, how that turned out. But when I think in particular about the prognosis cloudy, the chapter about Spencer Johnson and his family, how his story just exemplified um, so many aspects of the current opioid epidemic, its failures, the stigma, the the siloed experiences. And then unfortunately also the criminal justice system um, or injustice system in, in his story in particular, when um, a drug dealer in Minneapolis in the Minneapolis area was, um, convicted of of five counts um, of third degree murder because she's the one who sold uh, the fentanyl laced heroin to them. And this was, this is also highly unusual. There's very few States that are doing this. So I I felt that Spencer's story and his family's just reticence to have him included in this trial, that, that idea that justice will be served, whether, you know, the family of the deceased wants it to be or not was really fascinating and, and disturbing to me on, on some levels when we think about like, you know, law and order um, and, and the war on drugs. So I, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's a kind of a long answer (laughs) that you were, that you were asking for, but yeah, that you can see that grappling with all these different stories, it, it, it became hard because everybody, there were so many, so many powerful stories that it became really hard to kind of pick and choose and and decide. But ultimately that's what I, what I had to do.
0: Spencer's story is a very powerful, um, story and, um, and, and it, it's sort of, the book does such a wonderful job of, um, Bringing readers, you know, into the problem of the opioid epidemic, or rather, using these family, just this family, this perspective from families as a way to, um, to, to bring the lived experience sort of um, home, and also to to look sort of outward and see how many people and how many areas of society, um. The opioid epidemic sort of touches, um, and um, anyway, I, I think Spencer's story is a is a, a really moving one. Um, I I know that you're you you plan to have a a, a companion website for um, the Minnesota o- Opioid Project. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, and um, once you. Those interviews, um, the interviews will be up there. They'll be publicly available. Um, What would you want to direct people's attention toward? Um,
1: Well, so there's there's kind of two parts to to what I'm what the what's going to happen with the interviews. The the more um, formal academic part is that the University of Minnesota um, social history. Social Welfare Archive or social history. Anyway, there, I can't, I'm, I've got the wrong name for it right now. But the University of Minnesota Libraries and Archives have asked to have these interviews and they will um, keep them, paper copies of them. They will digitize them and they'll digitize anything that I give them from the project or they'll have it available in, in the archive. The other part of my project, I wanted to ha- have it have also have a digital life of its own, so that people could connect with these stories, hear people's voices, and also read um, more annotated versions of some of the the interviews, see photographs. So, so my plan, which got you know waylaid because I was writing the book, um, is to create an archive an online archive for the general public that would be separate from what the university of Minnesota would do. So I'm, I'm trying to cover, you know, two bases, the, this digital world we live in, um, where people want more in, tr- you know, access to resources. I'm, I'm hoping to also, you know, direct people to resources and things that might help them even academic papers, scientific papers, um, where they could, you could just find, Things that would be useful if you happen to be embroiled in in the struggle of um, a chaotic addiction with with yourself or with with another person. So there's that kind of helpful, interesting public site, and then then the archive is um, where I feel my you know my allegiance to um, oral history and to having. Um, it in a proper place because this was originally what I thought I was like well I'm just going to make this collection and deliver them to. (laughs) surely someone will want this whether it's you know the Minnesota Historical Society or the university someone will want this information so that's that's my plan to touch all bases there.
0: If you could direct listeners to just one oral history interview from the project, once they're, sort of, say, they're digging in the archive or they're poking around on your website um, at some future date, what would you want? What What do you think everyone should listen to?
1: Oh,
0: that was uh, such a hard question.
1: I I really think that it would be Anne Perry, Spencer Johnson's mom. Um, Because I think I will end up having two or three interviews with her and just there's something about her, how she took Spencer's addiction on and helped him as best she could for as long as she could. Um, I think 11 years is how long he he lived um, with that um, and died from an overdose and then, and then that experience, as I mentioned, um, there's really something powerful about reading the whole, the entirety of an interview. And I would say, um, I would say that, Anne. Although Marv sepala is a second, is definitely in second place. And then I had another woman, <laughs> Julie Hooker. So I'm, I'm not answering. I'm being a really good student and putting more in there than, than the professor three. has asked. Top three. Top three. That's, <laughs> top that's top three. Yeah, I was like, can we change that question, please, to the top three? <laughs> Julie Hooker's story is really interesting because she started using... Um, heroin in, in the eighties, um, late eighties and, and and moved back to Minnesota. So she moved out West, um, developed an addiction really was, you know, her story is, is just powerful. And then she too, uh, comes to, to want to change the treatment from the inside and ended up creating her own treatment center. Um, so there's just some there's just so many powerful people um, with incredible stories of of you know love and uh, giving back and
0: resilience.
1: Um, I think yeah. So anyway, now I've really um, exploded your question.
0: <laughs> well, um, you you write in in the introduction, I believe, early on in the book, you write um, about a kind of pattern or a cycle. That emerged from the oral histories you gathered. Um, you, you call it a, a painful, almost never ending pattern. And that is, and I'm gonna I'm quoting here stigma thrives on shame. Shame thrives on fear and regret. Fear and regret find refuge in silence. Silence keeps stigma intact. This cycle is not only an internal emotional one shared by individuals and families. It is also embedded in institutions, laws, and protocols meant to help, help in in scare quotes, people with substance use disorders. What can be done about this cycle? Um, I love that you
1: pointed this out because this was one of those middle of the night moments, (laughs) like, wait a second, what is happening in these interviews? What is happening? Um, So I think what we need to do, and there are some kind of social science-y people doing this, but I think we need to do it in a humanities-based way. And that is to dissect, to use a science word, we need to dissect stigma or we need to kind of excise it. We need to find it where it's hiding in everything and and get it out of there. Um, It's like a, you know, it is like a cancer in a way. It just, it ends up, we we started off, you know, dealing with, a, you know, alcoholism in a very moralistic way, even though it was devastating um, families and communities um, in the, you know, the myth of the gin craze and in the mid 1800s. And, and there's a moral, the deep moral dimension has imbued everything. And that moral dimension is also a judgmental one that um, stigmatizes people who use, and there's a very much a hierarchy of drugs and which drugs are okay. Like it's okay to drink to a certain point, um, but injecting drugs is another whole story. And then ideas about those people um, because of where we end up seeing them because of the stigma, and because of the lack of care they're getting, we've kind of created those people, right, who like, quote, live under a bridge, or criminals, or, you know, they're criminalized for something they're suffering with. And there's just so, I don't know, I'm getting kind of, I'm I'm getting a little bit off here. But when you when you start to see how when you start to see stigma, it's like seeing gender. You can't, un, you can't unsee it, right? When you start seeing, you know, racism in institutions, you can't unsee it. We, we, and, and so, but this has been, there are certain groups that we still will continue to stigmatize and we feel that it is, we're justified in judging them and dismissing them. And I think the drug users are among are still among those those kinds of people because so many people are incarcerated for an addiction. Um and people, oh, that can't be true. No, it's it is absolutely true. So when I start thinking about institutions and laws, there's stigma inside those very laws, right? Think about drug courts and all the people, the different kinds of judges in drug courts. Like, you might see one, like, the, there was a recent feature in the New York Times about a, a judge in New Mexico who's doing incredible things around trying to end the opioid epidemic. And then you'll see judges who are, you know, putting people away for 100 years um, in, in other parts of the country. So it, a failed UA, right, a failed urine drug screen could put somebody in jail, back in jail. When another judge would be like, okay, I'm going to give you another chance because I really, you know, I can relate to you somehow. There's not kind of, um, there's so much personal, um, there's we just bring so much to this problem that if we can't learn to see people with substance use disorders as human beings first, and as people who are maybe asking for help with their, their issue. You know, we can't, we can't end this crisis. So um, that's a really long answer to your, to your question. But, but I really believe that the shame piece, the silence piece, the fear, and then the regret are just embedded in, in so many things, not just in our institutions, but in the very people who've struggled um, and, and who, who still want, um, who still want help. I, I received an email to my um, college email account from a, a a woman in her 30s who said, the first line was, dear Professor Sullivan, I'm an unwilling fentanyl addict. I've been trying to get help for years. I'm 33 years old. I cannot get the care that I need. And it's just been having this you know, email exchange with her has been so validating to me in that this is not a problem just in Minnesota. This is not a problem. You know, this is the problem that you have people who really want help, who can't get the help they need because of all the, all the barriers that are put up, but also all the individuals that they have to deal with who decide they're not, nope, you can't do it this way. She's like, I know what will work for me and no one will do this for me. She's like, this is the care I need. I, I can't do this part again. I can't do the detox again. I can't, here's what I need. And I can't find it, which we would never do this with any other medical condition, right? We would never tell people to just go to a meeting and pray for their, um, if they, you know, or, or let's think about the ER example. You feel like you're having a heart attack. Well. We might have a bed for you in 10 days, right? But in the meantime, just go back out there, which is basically what happens when people overdose and, and are revived. Just get them out, treat them and street them. So this is, it's just, I guess the other thing, and I know I'm rambling here, but we're in a crisis. 100,000 people died last year. When are we going to actually do, make really quick, decisive moves? Um, and this is, I think, the thing that ended up frustrating me the most um, was just how slowly change is happening. And I think stigma plays a big role in that.
0: I have a follow-up question, which is um, whether you would, would you describe your oral history project as an activist project?
1: <laughs> it sure sounded like it from what I just said, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would say I am definitely um, an activist around this issue, um, a scholar activist, let's put it that way. Um, Yeah, I I do because, but first I think it's an education project. It's a, it's an empathy project. Um, And then if you have empathy, you can then choose to make different choices for your loved ones and for your people in your community. So Yeah, I I would first call it an empathy project, um, because that's what I'm starting to hear from people who've read the book is, wow, I had no idea. I just had no idea. And I think that that's part of what I want is I want to kind of open up the, all these doors to all these stories so that people can actually get a sense of what is, what is it like, um for families, for people who use, for people who are working on, you know, street outreach for physicians. Um, what is it, what is it like and how can we, how can we change this? So yes, it is activist, but that's underneath the education and the empathy. (laughs) empathy
0: (laughs) Secondarily. Yeah,
1: secondarily, Yeah.
0: Um, what is, what's the current state of the project? Um, what are your hopes for it? Um,
1: I, the current state is that I need to get the, I need to get my interviews ready for the archive and I need to create, um, my website, make my website what I, what I imagine it, um, to be, um. But I don't know. I, I'm not sure that I'm going to keep interviewing people. Um, one thing I thought about doing was um, creating kind of a um, an opportunity for people to interview other. You know, to have students interview people, to have people. You know, people who have, have learned some things, like maybe in my oral history class, um, students could interview other people collect names of people who are interested in being interviewed or find some kind of way for stories to continue to be shared. Um, what I've seen in my research on these kinds of uh, websites is that this can be difficult to maintain over time. And so I'm, I am really have to think about that in terms of what is this, is this book going to, and this archive just a snapshot in time? And I'm probably leaning. In that direction, because of the the uh, constant attention that a website that's constantly uploading new people's stories <laughs> requires uh, on the on the tech end, um, and and the you know the college IT folks, or um, even on myself. So um, that's and and my hope is it, for the project itself, um, and for the book. I think is that it gets in the hands of people who can use it to um, share, for people to feel more open about sharing their stories, I think is another aspect of it. But then also as an educational tool, I'd really like to see it um, be used in public health schools, in medical schools, um, in treatment centers. Um, I'd like therapists to read it. I'd like people who work in methadone clinics. I just think there's a lot of, of opportunities to um, to use it in a way that could actually benefit people who encounter the systems um, that people currently encounter when they're, when they're struggling with a, a use disorder.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book and it's a, I'm sure it'll be a useful book and it's an exciting project that the book is a part Thank of you so much. Thank you. Um, have t- we've taken up a lot of your time and this sort of, br- this brings us to our, uh, kind of traditional final question, which is what are you working on next? I, it's a toss up. No, I'm just kidding. It's a toss up between embroidery, uh,
1: projects and art projects or, uh, getting my dissertation turned into a book. I think I will work on getting my dissertation turned into a book and just keep those other little, um, self-care creative. Uh, projects on the side um but no it in all seriousness i i would like to turn my dissertation into a book because it it has um i really want to bust open the idea of true crime um the experience um the the tragedy that i i i wrote about was a 1977 um girl scout camp where three young girls were um, sexually assaulted and murdered on the very first night of camp and because the because the uh perpetrator was not was found not guilty um and then subsequently died, I shouldn't call him a perpetrator the accused um, the the story has become fodder for true crime aficionados and I find it really troubling and and my dissertation tried to work on this you know was going in this direction obviously which this is not a true crime this is a tragedy and we need to find other ways to um, think about crime because in a society that's becoming increasingly more violent we have more and more people who are living with trauma and we need to do something about it, and this is an even bigger project than opioids, I'm afraid, um, in terms of like a big project, right? But thinking of it, this project—the my dissertation was a is a microhistory, and and that is I want it to be something that isn't just a story of what happened from the perspective of survivors, which no one was called a survivor the way that people are now. Um, we were all just told to. You know, just get on with our lives. Um, this is—we have so many people walking around who are survivors of violence, and it seems to me we need to like look at certain stories and figure out what are the ways that we can heal from this and create more of a, you know, less violent communities. But how can we also turn away from um, glorifying crime and making it such? you know, uh, you know, tantalizing, titillating kind of entertainment, um, especially when it involves women and children. Um, and that seems to be the, the bulk of true crime, uh, in so many, in so many cases. So yeah, that's a dark, it's a dark project,
0: um, which but but very worthy, a very worthy project. Wow, and and um, I, I, bigger than the opioid epidemic. Um, yeah,
1: so it kind of scares me. Now you know why I wanted to talk about like art projects and embroidery.
0: <laughs> well, I I wish you um, all the best of luck with it, and um, and and with the Minnesota opioid project too. Um, Thank you you so much for sharing it with our audience today, Amy. Yes,
1: thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you about it.